0: If you've got a Bible, um, please turn to Revelation, oh, no, Revelation, right? Chapter 19. Um, we have been, in our Wednesday studies, been going through the book of Judges, um, which PT will pick up again next week. Last week we looked at Samson, that was a really interesting and challenging account. Um, yeah, but PT will continue that. I'll walk through judges next week but for now we'll take a slight detour and we will be looking in uh, looking at a few verses in the book of revelation um, the last book of the bible um, so let's briefly pray together and then we'll begin to walk through what we're going to be doing today father I just want to thank you um, for, for bringing us here on this um, on this, uh, well, cold evening outside, but hopefully warm evening inside. Um, And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, um, that you would guide me by your Holy Spirit as I seek to teach from your word. Uh, May you minister to us, and may we all leave just with with a word or something to meditate upon. May we all leave having having met with you today. May your words truly come alive in this time. May you guide us through your word, in your name, Jesus. I pray, Amen. As we read through the Bible, we see that God's story isn't about us; it's about Him. He's the main focus of the story. He is the author, and He's the main character, and we get to be a part of the story. But the story is ultimately not about us. We're not the main focus; rather, He gets, but rather we get to be a part of his story. And today we see this very clearly in the text that we read and throughout the whole book of Revelation. And a cool thing about Revelation is, is kind of this. We, we get to know how the story ends. And kind of as, we brief, as I briefly mentioned on Sunday, knowing how the story ends changes how you live now. And it changes the actions you make now and how you you live and how you act and what you believe. Um, The disciple whom Jesus loved, John, is on the island of Patmos. That is kind of the background. He's coming to the, nearing the end of his life and he receives this vision um, of the things which are, the things uh, which have been and the things that are yet to happen. And through John, God tells us how the story ends. And in chapter 9, we get kind of we're nearing to the end. We're nearing, essentially reaching kind of the climax of God's redemption. Um, and we read in chapter 19, we get a glimpse of kind of three things. We get a glimpse of heaven proclaiming praises to God. We get a glimpse of this final marriage and also a celebration supper. And these are kind of the main themes we'll be looking at. So in verse 1, it says this. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great." And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean And bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In these ten verses, we will see the word hallelujah used four times. Um, but the question is, what does the word actually mean? It's kind of a word, we, um, especially if we kind of a Christian, kind of grown up in Christian circles, it's a word which you've kind of heard. A lot, a lot of the times. We've heard it in books. We've heard it sung in songs and said by other Christians. But what does it actually mean? As it seems to take quite a focal point in these few verses. And as we kind of look deeper, the word hallelujah is Hebrew in origin. And literally means to praise ye Yah. Or praise Yah. And Yah is a shortened version of Yahweh. So it literally means... Praise you, Lord, or praise the Lord. To say hallelujah is, in essence, a call, a command to praise God. And hallelujah is a call to praise. It is an adoring exclamation, or rather an exclamation of adoration, a cry of love and worship to God. And John invites us to witness a great multitude in heaven crying out praises to God. Alongside these four hallelujahs, we also see that as these these calls to praise are there, there's also the reasons why we are called to praise God. As Christians, we are called to give him praise. In essence, we are called to sing hallelujah. And it is, in essence comes down to this, it is because of not just who God is, but because of what God has done. In verse one, it says this, "After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven." And get the picture, this idea that there is a great multitude, and not even a specific number was given. is given. always said it's a great multitude. I so think about it, thousands upon thousands, or even more than that, of, of these people singing and saying out loud, "This hallelujah, salvation." And glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. We are called to praise God because of who He is. When they sing this, when they shout out this, they're saying, first of all, that four things belong to God salvation, glory, honor, and power belong to God. And think of that idea, that word of belonging. Think of it when something belongs to you, it is. It is yours. It is your possession. You own it. And the first of these things is this. The proclamation that salvation belongs to God. Salvation alone belongs to God. And we see this appears in other places in the Bible. In, in Revelation, in chapter 7, it says, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude. And this is 7, 9 to 10. Which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Only our God can truly say Salvation doesn't belong to Buddha, to Muhammad, to Allah, or to any other false God or Prophet. The act of salvation belongs to well and truly to him alone, to our God. And likewise, salvation doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to you and me. We cannot save ourselves, only God can, and we cannot save others, only God can. we are not the hero in the story, but rather we are the ones in need of saving. So the question is, who are we turning to for our salvation? Are we putting our faith in the one for whom salvation belongs, or are we putting our faith in some other false Saviour? Or think of it another way as well, have we tried to become somebody else's Saviour instead of letting the Lord be their Saviour? It's very easy for us when we see the suffering around around us to we we, we, we want to save so often we need to realise that there is only one who can save and we must be careful not to put ourselves in a position where we take the place of Jesus in somebody else's life, where in essence we become a functional saviour. But the truth is we ourselves cannot save. And as one author notes, and I've kind of shared this quote before from the book called Redemption, One thing we cannot do is save. Only Jesus can save from sin and death. And so we must always remind ourselves that we serve the Saviour, but we are not the Saviour. But this is what we can do. What we can do is serve. And we can, by the grace of God, the loving eye, serving hands, and liberating mouth of Jesus Christ. We can tell a story of redemption that is in fact the story of the Bible and this good news is far superior to despising others for sin or excusing sin or hiding sin or partially confessing sin or denying sin, becoming defined by our sin or minimising our sin, giving in to our sin or being ruled by our sin, accepting our sin or ignoring it because this good news is far better for it actually redeems us from sin when accompanied by a lifestyle of humble and biblical faith and repentance. And by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit we can witness the powerful biblical story of redemption to transform someone's story into a story of God's redemption. We cannot save, but what we can do is point them to the one who does save. But not only does salvation belong to God, but glory and honour belong to God. God is the one deserving of ultimate glory and honour. It belongs to him. He owns it. He possesses it. And it is God, not us, on the throne being worshipped for all eternity. The story is about him are we busy trying to receive our own glory, busy trying to receive our own honour, or are we giving it to the person for which it is due? Do we understand that he is the one to be glorified and honored? And as I look through the Bible, we see a guy who whose life portrays that, whose life perfect well maybe not perfectly, but whose life was all about that making more of Christ and less of himself. And this guy was John the Baptist. His very life, his very ministry was all about pointing people to Jesus. And in John's Gospel it says this in chapter 3, 25 to 30. And here we get to see a life that lives out this truth. A life that honoured God and glorified him instead of himself. And it said this in 25 to 30 of chapter 3. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptising and all are coming to him. Essentially, this is what happens. John has his disciples and he, is, he has been ministering and pointing people to Jesus. He's saying he's preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus has now come and Jesus' own ministry has started and he, Jesus has his own disciples and then here's John. John the Baptist and his own disciples and his disciples come to him and they say, look, everybody is going to Jesus, John. Look, everybody is following him. And this is what his response is. John answered and said, a man... Can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. And you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood that it wasn't about him receiving glory and honour. It was about Jesus receiving glory and honour. And even when his disciples were like, "Well, well, what about you, John? You're losing people. I mean, people are going to him instead of you. And he was like, I know, and that should be the case because he has to increase and I must decrease. Are we going to be in for a rude awakening when we get to heaven, when we realise it really isn't about us? It really isn't us on the throne, it really is Jesus on the throne. He is the one being worshipped and adored. Or will we, like John, use our lives to make much of him? So salvation, honour and glory belong to God, but then also power And we kind of looked at this last week. One of the reasons for Samson's downfall was exactly this, that he forgot that real power belongs to God and comes from God. Are you relying on your own strength or seeking the full strength of others? Or do you realise that power belongs to God? Do the circumstances around you make you doubt God's power? Have you believed the lie that the enemy and the sin within us is more powerful than God? Or are you holding on to this truth, that he for whom power belongs lives inside of you and me? And as the author of this book says in his own letter, 1 John 4, 4, he says "If You are of God's little children, and have overcome them because... He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus lives inside of us, and true power belongs to him. And then we see, going back to Revelation again, we see first of all that they're like they're saying praise, praise God, because salvation, glory, honor and power belong to him. But then also, in verse two, because true. And righteous are his judgments. Praise God because his judgments are both true and they are both righteous, they are just. God's judgments are always right, they're always true, they're always just. If God says something is right or wrong and says that the specific judgment or consequence for that should be this, he is right, he's true in his decision, And it's just in his ways. But what happens when we disagree with that judgment? When we disagree with that, we ourselves are wrong, not him. And we are the ones who are in need of changing and not him. If God says something clearly in his word as being wrong, he is right in his judgment. It doesn't matter what... The world says it doesn't matter what we think or what we believe. He is right and we are wrong. We are not God. He is. What part of God's morality are you struggling to accept? And have you put yourself above God seeking to tell Him what is right or wrong? Or are you willing to humbly submit to what He says is right or wrong? And this isn't just an issue for the world around us. This is an issue for us as Christians. We seem to be able to do this too, don't we? There are often times that even as Christians, when we don't agree with what God says, we either tend to ignore him or change the meaning and go in search of finding others who will back up that belief instead of humbly being obedient and submitting, accepting that he is just and we are not. And Paul talks about this very issue to Timothy and he warns him that this will happen. He warns him that Christians, there will come a time when Christians or those who call themselves Christians will when, will no longer tolerate that which is true. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 he says this, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. As Paul describes, when we choose no longer to endure sound doctrine, we put our own sinful desires above God. We worship those desires instead of God and 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 simply seek to use God as a means to justify our own sin. But what is God's response to that? He calls us away from that. He calls us not to turn away from that is true and embrace something which is false, but He says, in response, to call yourselves from falling into that same danger, He says, be watchful, sit under the full counsel of God, both exaltation and rebuke. Sit under the full counsel of God. And humbly submit. And so often, there's still an objection in our hearts. I, have you ever heard this, have you ever heard this in, in your own heart or in the heart of others? I know God's word says, but. Recently when sharing a passage of scripture with someone, we read through a section and it was a promise rather than a rebuke. So it wasn't even a rebuke, it was a promise. And in that promise... The Bible was saying that if you do A, B is a result. But if you miss out on doing A, you're gonna miss out on B. A has to come first. If you do B, the sorry, if you do A, the promise is B. And I was trying to desperately encourage them to embrace that promise, although it would have been a costly one. Yet their response was this I know it's God's word. And I know it's the Bible, so if it says that is the case, then that is the case, but. And we are all guilty of doing this, of making excuses to why we shouldn't be obedient to God's word. But let's be honest, there is no right excuse. And in the end, we are the ones who miss out. And we end up just elevating the excuses or a person or a situation above God. And my challenge to you and to me is this, is that when God's judgments challenge our own, trust him, be obedient to him, and step out in faith. Accept that your heart and judgments are not always perfect and sometimes, or many times, are even sinful. Whereas God's judgments are always true, are always righteous, are always perfect. Be obedient in faith, accepting that sometimes obedience comes before understanding. And as a lady called Rose, wrote that, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield in her book, which is a really candid confession and testimony of her life, says this, I learned that we must obey in faith before we feel better or different. And at this time, no obeying in faith to me felt like throwing myself off a cliff. Faith that endures is heroic, not sentimental. There are moments when we're called to be obedient, when we don't understand it and we don't feel like it. But step out in faith, trusting that he is faithful, that he is true, that he is right and that he will change you. And then it carries on further. So we see that God's salvation, glory, honour and power belong to him and his judgments are righteous and just. And for these reasons we are called to praise him. But he goes on further. Other reasons that we are called to praise him is because God has judged Babylon and avenged the saints. In verse 2, For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. We have been mainly focusing on praising God for who he is and now we focus on praising God for what he has done. For them in the future, it is literally them looking back at what God has done for us. It's looking ahead to what God will do. And this is, if we, don't as a, if we don't kind of get the context of this, it kind of does seem a bit strange. And God is using extremely strong language and picture here. Who or what is this prostitute that God will bring judgment upon? And to get a better understanding of this, we need to go back a couple of chapters. Revelation is a... Uh, is an amazing book. It is also, at times, a very confusing book. But here we do see who this harlot or prostitute represents. And we look at this in chapter 17, verse 18. Sorry, chapter 17, 1-6, it says this. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and their inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy. Having seven heads and ten horns, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And then skip down to verse 18. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Remember, this is, in this part of Re- Revelation, John's vision is of the future, of the time to come, of how everything is going to end. And in those end kind of times, in those end days, it appears that this image of a prostitute represents a great city that will rise up called Babylon. And this city will be above peoples, it will be above nations and multitudes, and it will be a city of influencing power across the world. It will be full of sexual sin, corruption, impurity, uh, abominations, and the persecution of saints. Literally, the city will be dripping in the blood of those who call themselves Christians. In short, this is a city in complete opposition to God and this appears that this is the trajectory of the world that the world essentially this this Babylon is the ultimate picture of a world that chooses to live without God completely denying who he is completely unwilling to follow and worship him completely in enmity against him And this is where the trajectory of where the world is going. Should we be surprised that even now we will find that the world does not always agree with us? Should we be surprised that the world is not for Jesus? And what is the fate of such an evil city? It is judgment. God will not let evil go unpunished. And he will avenge the sin committed against his children. Our God is a just God. And our enemy will be defeated. And he says that and exactly what he says in verse 3. Again they say hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Another hallelujah rises up. We are called to praise God because our enemy will be defeated. He does not have the final say. Sin will be conquered. And those who put their trust in Jesus will get to spend eternity with our victorious King. And at this time, we see in this vision that it is a great multitude in heaven who are singing out or crying out. And now there are some others who want to get in on the praises as well. In verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. We see that it's now the turn of the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and they say, Amen. They say that I agree, I agree with what you've said, I agree that yes, this is who God is and yes, this is what God has done and he is worthy of praise. And then in verse 5, we have this specific call to praise God. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and small. And great, you see on this heavenly throne this multitude that is praising God, and there is this voice which comes out from the throne of God, and it is a command it is "Praise our God, all you, His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great, Christians, we are called to praise God. If we have given our life to Jesus, we fit into that. If we are his servant and if we fear him, whether we are both small or great, we are called to praise him. And to praise means to express warm approval or admiration of someone or something. It means to express one's respect, one's gratitude towards someone or something, especially In song to praise is for us to declare, to sing our praises to God, our gratitude to God, our approval of him, our admiration of him. So who are we praising? With our heart, with our mouth and with our hands, are we praising the true and living God? Or are we praising somebody or something else? Because our God is worthy of praise. And he continues on in verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent rains once again there is a great multitude and as they speak it is like the sound of many waters and the sound of thunder i remember recently when flying back from a a trip to italy on holiday with my family and by the time we left the airport it was dark and we're flying in the air and i'm pretty sure as always i fell asleep and then suddenly woke up again and i thankfully had a window seat because window seats are always the best and I look outside and in the distance I see lightning. I'm too far away, obviously, to hear the thunder and I'm actually kind of glad that I'm far away enough not to hear thunder. And you, but it was magnificent to be up in the sky and, to, and can be complete darkness outside and to see this lightning illuminating the sky, illuminating the clouds around, to see the majesty and power of God. And here John sees this great vision and he sees a multitude which is so loud that it sounds like thunder when they speak. And what are they saying? They are saying, hallelujah again, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. God is worthy of praise. Once again, hallelujah, that call to praise God because he is omnipotent. And he, wa- and he reigns. And omnipotent is a word we don't come across every day. It's not something we generally say every day. So, what does it mean? If you look back at the original Greek word used in this, it means all-ruling or unlimited power. To see God as omnipotent is to see God as having absolute and universal sovereignty. And some translations will actually use the word almighty. Hear the multitude proclaim that God is above everything. He is the supreme authority and nobody is above him. And not only is nobody above him, but then he also reigns. He is in control and over all things. And out of this truth, he reigns. Almighty over everything, and do we live our lives in light of this truth? Are we like the city of Babylon that just chooses to ignore God's power and sovereignty to one day be judged? Or do we humbly submit and say, Lord, you are real, and I want to live in light of that truth? Will we believe the lie, or will we believe the truth, and humbly submit? to him. And then the rejoicing continues in verse seven to eight. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The story, God's big story, ends with a wedding. And it is between the lamb and his bride. And who is the lamb and who is, his, and who is the bride? As we read through scripture, we see that Christ is the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. And the bride is the church. As uh, an author and pastor, Timothy Keller, says in his book, Meaning of Marriage, at the climax of of the Genesis account of creation. We see God bringing a woman and a man together to unite them in marriage. And then the Bible begins with a wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with a wedding of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. Here he correctly reminds us that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage. And this final marriage is between Christ and the church. And we've already read how John the Baptist even himself is alluding to that and he's, 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 he's proclaiming that and he's saying that I am preparing the way for this wedding to happen between Jesus and his church, the bride. And to understand this passage and ultimately to understand the purpose of our own marriages, we must look at what God says about marriage. We must reject our wrong ideas and embrace that of what God has created and what he defines as marriage. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, in 5, verse 22 to 33, he says this, and this not only is, is very detailed description of and doctrine about how our earthly marriages is, but it points to that ultimate marriage right at the end and helps us to understand what this final marriage is all about and why God is worthy to be praised because of that. Chapter 5 and 22 and verse 33 of Ephesians says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands in everything. So it be to their, husbands, to their own husbands in everything. Then he continues, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or winkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves her. Himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul makes it clear that marriage is not mainly about us, but it is ultimately about Christ. Paul helpfully explains the link between the first wedding in Genesis and the end wedding in Revelation. Our earthly marriages were designed to be a picture that points to that great wedding. People would look to our marriages and better understand the God that loves and pursues them. And we notice specifically when he speaks in the verse and says, about marriage, this is a great mystery. I love how Paul says, marriage is a mystery. And then he goes on and says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Marriage is to display Christ and the church. We see that man and woman have distinct roles. That the husband and the wife are called to mirror Christ and the church. The man is called to display the role of Jesus the Lamb, and the woman is called to display the role of the church, and both roles are unique and distinct, just as much as Christ the Lamb can't be the bride, so the man can't be the woman, and vice versa, each role is important, separate, distinct, and God ordains. When we live in light of that, that changes our marriage. When we know that our marriage is meant to point to this great marriage in the future, it changes how we live now. Our marriage is no longer become that which is earthly, but that which is heavenly, pointing towards the future. And ultimately at the heart of that will be the, the issue and the subject of sanctification, becoming more like Christ. As we kind of just read in Revelation, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. On this final wedding day, the bride will be granted, and that word is important, granted, to be arrayed in fine, clean and bright linen, just like a spotless white wedding dress. And this clothing is a picture of the righteous acts of the saints. In essence, it is a picture of our sanctification, us becoming more like Jesus, which is granted to the church. And that word is important. Granted, our sanctification, us becoming more, more pure, us becoming more like Christ, is not is a gift which we do not deserve, and a gift for which he empowers himself. Just as on that final day in Revelation, when we see on this wedding day, the bride is clothed with the righteous acts of the saints, so we see in our own day-to-day marriages that the man and the woman become more and more like Jesus. And we see that the husband's role is just as we see the righteous acts put on the church in the future, the husband's role is to model this same thing and to push her wife sorry, his wife towards sanctification. And we see that when he says in 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So men, we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church and give ourselves for our wives as Christ gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or winkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We see that the, the husband has this role of encouraging his wife to pursue sanctification, to become more like Christ. And what is the husband's tools? He says this, the tools are this, he does this through three things. He sanctifies his wife through three things. Loving her as Christ did, laying down his life for her as Christ did, and washing her by the words Husbands, are we doing this? Are we practically loving our wives, making decisions that point them towards Christ, whilst preaching and teaching and leading them in the Bible daily? And not only is this the role for the husband to pursue and his wife, but it is the role—it is the role for all of us. We are called, all of us, to become more like Jesus, to put on those garments and and become more pure more like him and wise are you encouraging him in this calling and lovingly submitting to his leadership as ultimate as you are ultimately or while ultimately in submission to Christ as over all authority and leadership and Timothy Keller in that same book describes this beautiful mystery and this process of sanctification like this what then is marriage for? It is for, is, let me say it again, what then is marriage for? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves. The new creation that God will eventually make us. The common horizon husband and wife look toward is the throne. He says that 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 common horizon, that common goal for the husband and the wife is the throne of God. It is that future day. It is that future wedding. And he says this, so looking towards that horizon is the throne and the holy, spotless and blameless nature we will have. One day we will be holy and blameless and spotless And right now we are called to pursue that. We are called to work and change and look towards that horizon. And he says this, I can think of no more powerful common horizon than that. And that is why putting a Christian friendship at the heart of a marriage relationship can lift it to a level that no other vision for marriage approaches. Both the man and the husband are looking towards that horizon that future and working together towards that end to become more like Christ, to become that which he created them to be, their future selves. And today we have had a glimpse of that horizon, a glimpse of that throne when we will be reunited with Christ. Are we working, whether single or married, to that horizon? Or are we working towards something else? And then as in with all good weddings, there is always a wedding feast. And in verse 9 to 10, it says this, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As with all good weddings, there is a feast, a great celebration, an invitation has gone out, But will we accept the invitation? And he says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who gets to go to the supper? Who gets to go to this end wedding feast at the end of all time? Those who, by faith, have accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and have received his gift of forgiveness. And how do you receive this gift? How do you receive this gift and get to go into the feast of all feasts in the presence of God himself at that final day? It is by repenting of our sin and putting our faith and trust in Christ. Just like the prodigal son, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the story of Jesus tells of the prodigal son, of that parable, we see that the prodigal son, who repented of his sin, came back to the Father and entered into a great feast. By repenting of our sin and putting our faith in, and trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection to new life three days later, we can receive this gift. And just like the prodigal son who had squandered everything on wild living, who was literally in the lowest of lows, none of us are deserving of coming back to the Father. None of us are deserving of entering in into that final feast with him. And that is the great gift of forgiveness which Jesus offers us. And all we need to do is stand up and turn back to him. As the prodigal son does, the prodigal son realises his sin, he confesses his sin, he gets up, he comes to the father, he repents of his sin, he turns from his sin, and then he asks the father, forgive me. And the father is there with open arms to accept him to restore him as a son and to bring him back into the feast the prodigal son reminds us that none of us none of us are out of the reach of God and his forgiveness the only thing which is required of us is to repent of our sin and turn to him and then as we see and I like how after he says blessed are those who carried we are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. What we have read in this text is true and is of God. And once again, he reminds us, these things are true. These things which are to happen will happen. And will you live in light of that? And then this section ends with John being rebuked because he was being reputed for his misplaced worship. See, John saw these things and he naturally worshipped, but he worshipped the wrong person. He worshipped the messenger instead of worshipping the one who sent the messenger. And as Christians, we are always guilty of this as well, where we, where we can sometimes elevate or worship the person who is delivering the message, whether that's a preacher or a famous pastor but we are to remember that we're not called to worship the messenger, but we are a servant just as they are, and we are called to worship the one who sent the message. So today, I invite you to join me in this call to worship and praise God. We are together fellow servants, and together we are called to praise God the true and living God while holding on to the testimony of Jesus and Jesus and his testimony his death on the cross and resurrection to new life is at the forefront and, and the heart of that so will you join me in that hallelujah call in that call to praise and worship God with our whole lives because of who he is and because of what he has done, because of what he has done, because of who he is. Because of who he is, he is Lord, he is almighty, he is omnipotent, he is just, righteous, true, powerful, saviour, glorious and honourable. And hallelujah, because of what he has done, as we're kind of looking in the future, looking back, but as for us here, looking ahead for what He will do hallelujah to him because he will defeat our enemy. He will deliver judgment and justice. He will conquer our sin. He has called us his bride and he invites us into the feast with him. Let us pray together as we seek to answer that hallelujah call. Father, I want to thank you for who you are and for what you have done. How you are Lord, that you are almighty and you are glorious and you reign supreme. I praise you for the things that you not only have done, dying on a cross for the sins of the world, inviting us into that feast and calling us your bride. But the things that you will do and that you are doing, you are making us more like you. And you will conquer the sin. You will save us from the very power, presence and punishment of sin. I thank you for your promises. And I thank you for this gift that you offer us. That we, as Christians, get to join you in that Last Supper. That we get to be reunited with you and live with you, our victorious King, forever and ever. And how do we accept that gift? How do we get to come into the feast? It is by putting our faith and our trust in you, Jesus, in your finished work on the cross dying for our sins, taking on the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven and so that you could then rise again on the third day and offer us a new resurrected life, a new creation which we are becoming more and more like every day. Lord, may our lives be lives of praise to you in all and everything that we do. Help us to live out of these truths. And Lord, may us, knowing the future, knowing how the story ends, change how we live today. May we live in light of our future hope. May we live for eternity and not just for the temporary by your Holy Spirit, empower us to be the people we can never be on our own and to live the lives we can never live on our own. In humble adoration and praise to you, our Saviour, our Lord, our Friend, our King, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.